and in the body of the letter, these incomparable ideas are continually joined to one another. We see that an eternal inheritance is linked to various trials. In other words, salvation's future goal, as we see in verses 3 to 5, is built upon the present trials we see in verses 6 to 9, as well as the past glories as per 10 to 12. Then beginning in verse 13, Peter begins to establish answers to some pending questions. In light of these present trials, how are Christians supposed to bear witness to Christ's glory? How are we to live in this wilderness world? Peter's prescriptive answer centers on the Christian's conduct. And in verse 15 of chapter 1, says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. The word translated conduct in this verse is used only 24 times in the entire New Testament. And yet nearly half of those come from Peter. He uses it 11 times. In essence, Peter's strategy for Christian conduct, rooted in a settled hope, comes from a focus on sanctification, a sincere love for others both in and out of the church, submission to unjust leaders out of love for Christ, a willingness to suffer, and service to God's new family. These are the elements of Christian conduct. Peter goes on to develop this theme of Christian identity and conduct in light of a settled hope. Reaching a turning point in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, we find a concise exhortation to live lives worthy of our unique calling. Examples of what this looks like abound in chapter 2, verse 13, 18, and chapter 3, verse 1. And in case Peter's early readers have trouble grasping this gracious truth, he will go so far as to argue that Jesus Christ was the supreme example of this teaching in chapter 2, verse 21, verse 25. Aware of the high demands this will place upon his readers, Peter encourages them in setting forward the exilic-like wandering years of King David, the anointed one who suffered in an effort to help them press on in chapter 3. And finally, further in chapter 3, he returns to Christ and grounds the irony of his divine logic in the demonstration of Christ's ultimate vindication as proof of our future hope and present calling. And in these later chapters, Peter continues to encourage his readers with an example of Christ overcoming extraordinary trials He concludes by making an appeal to the elders specifically and then to everyone more generally in chapter 5 to fulfill their unique callings in humility and grace. The divine principle of true grace is this. God has established our salvation, given us our identity, confirmed our present-day calling, and secured our future inheritance by means of an inverted irony, namely the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. Therefore, just as the exaltation of Jesus followed a season of humiliation, so too our share in His eternal glory will appear after we have learned to follow in this truth in gracious ways. That was Kent Hughes' introduction to 1 Peter. And as we see the recognition of a letter written to a church suffering, and the promises within that, and yet pointing us to an everlasting eternal hope that is given to us in Christ Jesus. And in that sense, we want to start with this prologue in First Peter's. We look at this theme of suffering and look at this hope that we have been given. 
And in one of my first seminary classes, I was required to write a paper on the topic of prayer. And I began with this thesis. What is the purpose of prayer for a Christian during a time of suffering? It was a question that I had often asked myself and in this context seemed to be appropriate to pursue and try to find out an answer in hopes of providing the child of God a greater hope to endure such times. As God's word is clear, we see in Philippians chapter 1 verse 29, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And First Peter, as we've talked about the theme throughout, in chapter 4, starting in verse 12, follow along, verse 12 to 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteousness the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So we see we will suffer for his name's sake. This topic encapsulates this prologue introduction to this epistle. And this morning we want to look at three things in helping us to try to understand what as the title of the sermon indicates, is the purpose of prayer in suffering. The first point I want to look at very clearly, and we will go in a little bit deeper, is Christian and suffering. We already read in chapter 1, verse 6, and if you turn with me to chapter 3, verse 14, chapter 3, verse 14 says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. In chapter 5, verse 9, Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. The next point I want to look at will be prayer and the sovereignty of God. With this, please turn with me to chapter 3, verse 12 as a reference. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And also chapter 4, verse 19, which we already read. But listen to the appeal. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. As we call out in prayer to our faithful Creator. And then finally, I'll try to wrap it up 
with the third point, which is the purpose of prayer in suffering. Albert Moeller makes this observation in his book. We are carrying out a commission to make disciples of the king and citizens of the kingdom. And of course, we can only do so with great suffering and tribulation. So the first point, the Christian and suffering. As we saw in introducing his first epistle, the Apostle Peter addresses the persecuted church, and as he says, they were dispersed abroad according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in verse 2. They were discouraged and probably confused at the persecution they were facing because of their faith, and Peter opens his epistle by encouraging them to remain strong and reminds them to look to Christ, the source of their salvation and the source of their inheritance and looking at this inheritance that they have in him. The hope of his return to take the church with him to glory. He begins with a stark reminder of the gospel and the hope that the believer has. And as we read in our opening, starting in verse 3 of chapter 1, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. He then goes on in verse 6 and he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. We are called to rejoice in the hope of the gospel in this inheritance, this living hope that we have in Jesus Christ. The promised inheritance of eternal salvation, even though they were for a little while faced with various trials. He contrasts their eternal hope with the temporal suffering they now face, causing his readers to look beyond the trials of here and now and focusing their view on the glories of their inheritance. You see, Peter understands that suffering will be normal for the obedient Christian. He says in chapter 2, verse 21, because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example to follow in suffering. Persecution will be a result of following Christ. The Gospel of John, in chapter 15, familiar passage, I'll quickly read it here. John chapter 15, verses 18 through 19, said, if the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world hated Jesus first. And if we are in him, the world hates us as well, according to John chapter 15. And it is to this end that the scriptures speak much of the eternal glory of God and our inheritance with Christ as a contrast to our temporary affliction here on earth. And as hard as our afflictions are here, they are real. We are not diminishing them. But this is the hope that we have in scripture, seeing that our hope is eternally secure, that it lies in the work and person of Christ while we are walking this earth suffering here. Christ himself was mocked scorned, beaten, and ultimately crucified. And yet he was without sin. 
It is important to also note on that that suffering does not necessarily come as a result of sin. That is also something that we'll often hear. That if someone's going through a hard time, if there's suffering, if there's trials, persecutions, anything like that, burdens that we bear, that it's because of sin in our lives. And often it is. But that is not the only reason why we suffer. If we read on in verse 7 of our text in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7 says, so that, actually let's start in verse 6 again. In this you rejoice, this hope, this eternal inheritance that we have that is being guarded by the power of God. In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Look at verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials test our faith to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ and are often God's way of strengthening us in our walk with Him, creating in us an enduring faith through the process of sanctification. In his popular work on systematic theology, Wayne Grudem addresses this when he says, Not all discipline is in order to correct us from sins that we have committed. It can also be allowed by God to strengthen us in order that we may gain greater ability to trust God and resist sin in the challenging path of obedience. We see this clearly in the life of Jesus, who though he was without sin, yet, according to Hebrews chapter 5, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And he was also made perfect through suffering in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Therefore, we should see all the hardship and suffering that comes to us in life as something that God brings to us to do us good, strengthening our trust in Him and our obedience and ultimately increasing our ability to glorify Him. Peter also reiterates this point of Christ's suffering, the point of Christ's suffering, setting an example for us when he says, in chapter 3, verse 17 to 18, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So why would we not expect to suffer for doing good when Christ, the righteous, suffered and gave himself for us, the unrighteous? When Jesus calls us to suffer, He understands how we feel and what we are going through, for He also suffered. And He is our example in having done so. Paul says, We are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Romans 8. Peter further encourages his readers with this exhortation. In chapter 4, A portion we read earlier, but in chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised again at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. 
If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So we see suffering as a common theme in the New Testament Scriptures. Christ suffered, leaving us an example, and by sharing in His suffering, we also shall become partakers in His glory. Romans 8, 16-17, Paul says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So the expectation of suffering, as we've looked mostly in the epistle of 1 Peter, but we see is a common theme for the believer in the New Testament. So the next point I want to look at is prayer and the sovereignty of God before we tie the points together. We look as God as our sovereign creator, the one who rules the heavens and the earth. Acts chapter 4 verse 24 says, And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. He is given the title here, Sovereign Lord. And the word sovereign is translated from the Greek word despotes and speaks of a lord or master, especially of slaves, and by implication as denoting the possession of supreme authority. God, as creator of the universe and all that is in it, is by his very nature ruler over all and has complete authority over all his creation. As the psalmist says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And again he says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and in the seas and all the deeps. Not only do the scriptures declare God's absolute rule and authority over the entire universe, but it also addresses his authority over man and angels within the realm of his creation. He says in Daniel chapter 4 verse 35 that God, he does according to his will among the host of heaven and amongst the inhabitants of earth and none can stay his hand. The argument can then be made that God is in control of all things always, and in all places. And this then leads to the question, if God is in control of all things and has truly ordained all things, whatever comes to pass, can we then change God's mind or force Him to change His ways? The Scriptures seem to suggest that no, we can't. Job says in chapter 42, verse 2, that no purpose of yours, speaking of God's, can be thwarted. Again, referencing Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, he refers to God's sovereignty in his providence, as his providence, and he introduces the topic in this way. Once we understand that God is all-powerful creator, it seems reasonable to conclude that he also preserves and governs everything in the universe as well. Though the term providence is not found in scripture, it has been traditionally used to summarize God's ongoing relationship with his creator. He then defines the word providence in this way. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he, one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Two, 
cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And three, he directs them to fulfill his purposes. For an example, let's turn to Exodus chapter 3, where we see how God works and orchestrates and uses people's choices to uh, bring about his purpose. In Exodus chapter 3, let's read starting in verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So God is looking at how he will cause the Egyptians to let his people go. But not only that, his people cannot go into the wilderness empty-handed. So how will he do it? He will give his people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And then he commands them, all the women, to go to their neighbors and any ladies that live in their home and ask them for all these supplies. And then they will give them to them. And in this manner, they will plunder them. To plunder means to to take from and to steal. And in this sense, God will orchestrate it so that the Egyptians will give it to them. And that will be the form. And if we look in chapter 12 of Exodus... Starting in verse 35. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let him them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So we see how God worked sovereignly along with his creation to make sure that His ordained means came to pass, that His people would leave there with all that He had told them they would. And yet the Egyptians, from their perspective, freely gave these things to these people, unaware of how God had caused them to do it. And this is a great comfort to us, knowing that God is in complete control of all His creation, as the sovereign ruler and maintaining complete authority, he cares about us as his creatures, made in his own image, and has predestined then that he will work all things for our greater good. In his omniscience, we trust that he always knows what is best for us, as he uses our circumstances and various situations to ultimately conform us to the image of his Son, as we see in Romans 8.29. So the question is then raised, if God knows all things, predestines all that comes to pass, why pray? R.C. Sproul addresses this question in his booklet on prayer in the following way. He says, there is something erroneous in the question, if God knows everything, why pray? The question assumes that prayer is one-dimensional and is defined simply as supplication or intercession. 
On the contrary, prayer is multidimensional. God's sovereignty casts no shadow over the prayer of adoration. God's foreknowledge or determinate counsel does not negate the prayer of praise. The only thing it should do is give us greater reason for expressing our adoration for who God is. If God knows what I'm going to say before I say it, His knowledge, rather than limiting our prayers, enhances the beauty of our praise. R.C. Sproul then goes on a few pages later in the same book, and he addresses the question of intercession and supplication. Whether prayer makes a difference, does it change things? So he answers the first question, does prayer change God's mind? With a resounding no. But then he goes on and clarifies, if the question had rather been, does prayer change things? His response would have been, of course. Simply, does prayer change the mind of an all-knowing God? Of course not. Because then God would have known beforehand that he would have changed his mind, and that would have already been determined. But does prayer change things? Here I would strongly agree with R.C. Sproul, and again as well with Wayne Grudem when he writes, Prayer is an ordained means by which God may accomplish an ordained end. In the same manner that he has chosen the elect for salvation, but has ordained the preaching of the gospel as the means by which his elect are saved. Romans chapter 10 verse 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. So though we know God has preordained these things and elected people and chosen people according to his foreknowledge, we also know that he has commanded us to go and preach the gospel to all of creation using that means to bring about an end. And in the same way, God uses our prayers. So does prayer change God's mind? No. Does prayer change things? Yes. God uses our prayers to change things. So prayer does not shape or change the will of God, but rather it brings us into the will of God. We see this illustrated in the example Christ himself set for us, first in the Lord's Prayer where we are implored to pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying for God's will in our lives, not for us to change God's will, but for Him to make His will known to us, and then for us to live in such a way. And then Christ's own submission to the will of God, as He was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, in Luke chapter 22, verse 42, where He says, Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. This is Jesus' imploring the Father. Then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Albert Moeller makes this same argument in his book when he quotes J.I. Packer, where Packer says, here more clearly than anywhere, the purpose of prayer becomes plain. Not to make God do my will, which is practicing magic, but to bring my will into line with His, which is what is meant to practice true religion, for us to learn God's will and bring it into line with His will. 
Many times we pray in a manner that presupposes God's providential rule. We pray in such a way where we recognize God is sovereign over all things. When we pray, God, please help us. Any form or appeal that we make to God for help implies a trust that we have in God's ability to help in any particular request we make before Him as He has authority and control over all things. What about when someone is sick and we pray, God, please heal? This prayer implies that we already believe that He is able to provide healing for our physical needs and that He rules over our health. Or how many times do we pray prayers of thankfulness? God, thank you for. And then we continue. Here we're recognizing that God has already accomplished something on our behalf or in our favor in a complete autonomous fashion in and of Himself for which we owe Him and Him alone the gratitude. Not of ourselves. We owe Him all praise, adoration, and thanks. Each one of these statements and so many similar ones appeal to the sovereignty of God and the expectation that He can do or has already done something solely by His ability, unaided by our human effort. Truly, it is also in this that we find comfort that God is in control and as His children works all things for our good. And it is knowing that, that we can have trust in every situation. If God cannot control every situation, we cannot say that we can trust Him in every situation. But the fact that He is in control, and we know He has a greater purpose for transforming us into the likeness and image of His Son, because of that, we know that we can trust Him in all things. So what then is the purpose of prayer in suffering? We have seen the expectation of suffering for the Christian and the anticipation of an eternal hope. Also we see that God is sovereign over all his creation and is fully involved in all that comes to pass, including trials and suffering for his children. And as his children Christians are called to lead a life of continual thanksgiving and praise in ceaseless prayer. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And in this epistle, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Here we see the suffering again but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So we see this appeal to prayer, rejoice, sing in prayer, to pray without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances. But if God already knows all things, ordains all things, and rules over all things. Why pray? We do not pray so that God can find out what we need. Matthew chapter 6, 
verse 8 makes it very clear, starting verse 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So rather we pray because prayer expresses our trust in God and is a means whereby our trust in Him can increase. In fact, perhaps the primary emphasis the Bible's teaching on prayer is that we are to pray with faith, which means trust or a full dependence on God. God desires for us to trust Him. He is our Father and as such wants for us to have faith that He is looking out for our best. Though we may not understand how, but we trust that what He allows us to endure is for our good. In this way, humbling ourselves before Him in earnest prayer then reveals our understanding of our complete dependence on Him, and in such a way we worship Him through prayer and He works at sanctifying us through this means as well. E.M. Bounds, in his book on prayer, has a chapter on spiritual warfare, and he makes this observation regarding the Christian life. It cannot be said too often that the life of a Christian is warfare, an intense conflict, a lifelong contest, It is a battle fought against invisible foes who are ever alert and seeking to entrap, deceive, and ruin the souls of men. The Bible calls men to life, not a picnic or holiday. It is no pastime or pleasure excursion. It entails effort, wrestling, and struggling. It demands putting out the full energy of the Spirit in order to frustrate the foe and to come out at the last more than a conqueror. It is no primrose path, no rose-scented flirting from start to finish. It is war. The Christian warrior is compelled from the hour he first draws his sword to endure hardness as a soldier, according to 2 Timothy 2 verse 3. What misconception many people have of the Christian life. How little the average church members appear to know of the character of the conflict and of its demands on him. How ignorant he seems to be of the enemies he must encounter if he is to serve God faithfully, succeed in getting to heaven, and receive the crown of life. He scarcely seems to realize that the world, the flesh, and the devil will oppose his onward march. He hardly realizes that they will defeat him utterly unless he gives himself to constant vigilance and unceasing prayer. As we see, E.M. Bounds recognizes the centrality of hardship in the life of the believer and the need for a consistent time spent in earnest prayer. This matches the Apostle Paul's own exhortation when after defining the armor of God in his very popular passage in Ephesians chapter 6, putting on the whole armor of God, we look at that, we see that, and he concludes that portion in verse 18 of chapter 6 of Ephesians. He says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So we see how important it is through that, putting on the armor, 
breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the helmet of salvation, all these things, and the purpose they play in our Christian walk. To wrap that up with praying at all times in the Spirit with prayer and supplication. Prayer is then considered to be a very integral part of the Christian life. And evidently, a practice that coincides with our expectation of suffering. From a jail cell, Paul writes a letter to the Philippian church. Though they suffer for the sake of Christ, he is encouraging them to rejoice no matter the circumstances. If you want to turn to the book of Philippians, we'll look at a couple passages there. And as you're turning, I will read Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, where he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. He is encouraging them to rejoice no matter their circumstances and to treat others reasonably as we see in chapter 4, starting in verse 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul addresses worry here. He himself is imprisoned for his faith who himself has shared of his anxiety for all the churches. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, Paul shares that he is anxious for the churches that he has planted. He is worrying for them. But here in Philippians, he says, we are to not be anxious and to give all, everything to God in prayer and supplication. Just reveals again that we are a people who will become burdened with anxiety, with worry, with these things. And he gives us instruction what to do with it. He is here imploring his readers not to be overcome by their worry, but rather bring your request to God in prayer with thanksgiving, recognizing that it can be easier said than done very often, for he himself again revealed of his anxiety for the churches. What then is the promised result of faithful prayer in trying times? Let's continue in the Philippians chapter 4. Let's start again in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God cares enough for us to tell us. In 1 Peter chapter 5, he says to cast all our anxieties on Him. Bring all your worries to Him. And then here in the verse we just read in Philippians 4 verse 7, He promises to guard our hearts and minds with His peace, which is beyond our human understanding. And Paul's final exhortation to the church was one that also ended with a promise of God's peace, as we see continuing on in verse 8 and 9 of Philippians chapter 4. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, 
whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. It is during one of his own trials that Paul seeks to offer encouragement and hope to the church through prayer and supplication, to urge them to find contentment and strength to endure through Christ as he has learned to do. As he continues in verse 11, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And so it is with all believers. We have a mediator with the Father. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 7, the one who suffered in his humanity is now interceding for us who draw near to God through him. So then, what is the purpose of prayer for the Christian during suffering? We saw Peter addressing a church that was enduring incredible suffering. Hardship, persecution, murder, torture, What about in our trials? What about our hardships? Or when it seems that life just can't go on? We heard testimony this morning a bit from our sister, Nicole. The struggles she had while serving the Lord. Being in His will does not negate these hardships. But I believe we also saw and heard how it drew her closer to Him. Time in prayer and in the Word, weeping before Him. That goes for all of us as we endure things in this life that are hard. We will suffer for His name's sake. When people will go around saying things about you, trying to destroy who you are, do rejoice in the fact that God is in control. I believe it is very difficult to do that. But do we understand that God is sovereign over all and therefore He is in control of all these situations that we endure, of all the hardships that we might face? And because He is in control, we can utterly and fully trust Him to use these things for our good and to transform us for His good. And that is a theme that we see Throughout First Peter, Peter continually pointing towards the eternal, to the hope of the gospel, to this inheritance that we as believers have in Christ Jesus that is guarded by the power of God. We have this hope that though it seems so dark and frail here today in front of us, we have an eternal hope with which we can move forward and trust in Him to see us through. 
And as we go through the book of 1 Peter, we will see that, how he instructs that and how he lives in that and how he teaches through that. So as Peter appeals several times within his epistle to our prayers, what is the purpose of prayer for the Christian during our suffering? I would answer it this way. It is to draw us into fellowship with God, our Father, and depend on Him completely as we follow the example of Christ in finding our every need cared for by the Creator of the universe, knowing that His peace will guard our hearts and minds, we can then find comfort and grace to endure suffering and trials or any other circumstance knowing that God is working in us to change us for His glory. Prayer does not inform us of what God, does not inform God of what He does not know nor does it get him to do what he is reluctant to do. Prayer does not change God. It changes us. This is not to say that God does not command us to pray or that he does not take our desires and prayer seriously. Rather, we must remember that God is sovereign at all times over all things while simultaneously being loving toward his people. Prayer is not our bargaining chip with a reluctant genie. It is our opportunity to commune with the Creator and Redeemer who loves us. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord God, we come before you again. Your word has challenged us and tasked us this morning, Lord, in the way of prayer. I pray, God, that your Spirit would give us words to utter to you. And when we do not have those words, Lord, we know that you are interceding for us. Be it through times of anxiety, through times of suffering, pain, sickness. Be it through times of grief. God, you are in control. And we trust you to conform us to the image of your Son. Through these things, help us, Lord, to be students of the Word, to be people of prayer for one another, for ourselves individually, God. Help us as a church body to pray for one another, to pray for our brothers and sisters that have moved to Bible school, to pray for our brothers and sisters that are hurting within this congregation, within our families and beyond into our community, God that we would pray for each other. As we see in your epistle, 1 Peter, that suffering is a very real expectation in our lives. Help us, Lord, to walk as a body, to allow our strengths to be in place of others' weaknesses and other strengths to be in place of our weaknesses. Help us to conform to the body of Christ in such a manner that brings glory to your name. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.